The crew was up and about long before the sun came up. Life on any sea vessel is rarely easy, and the crew of the Tuvalu had gotten used to the late nights and early mornings. They slept and rose to the sound of the sea and the gentle rocking of the waves. But on November 10th, 1955, as the sun rose over the horizon, the crew spotted something different. In the distance, another ship floated lazily over the water. Normally, the sight of another merchant vessel wouldn't be noteworthy, but everyone on board the Tuvalu had heard the stories of the MV Joyita, the trading ship that had vanished over a month before, sparking a massive maritime search mission and which had yet to be found. Now the Tuvalu had found it. The ship was half submerged. Its hull was severely damaged. As they got closer, the crew of the Tuvalu realized that they wouldn't be rescuing anybody on that day. That was because there wasn't a single living soul on board. The ship was empty. Its crew would never be found. Hi, I'm Molly. And I'm Richard. Welcome to Gone. Parcast Original. Every other Monday, we examine mysterious disappearances and the theories they spawned. From the Amber Room to Michael Rockefeller, Picasso paintings to the Etruscan language, the Roanoke Colony to the lost Russian cosmonauts. If it's gone, we're looking for it. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to Parcast.com slash merch for more information. You can find previous episodes as well as Parcast's other shows on your favorite podcast directory. This episode, we're looking into the mystery of the MV Joyita, a fishing vessel that vanished for over a month in 1955. When it was finally found, the entire crew was missing. Over half a century later, their fates are still unknown. The history of maritime travel is plagued with countless stories of ships that set off across the open ocean and were never seen again. The case of the MV Joyita stands out, though, because it was actually recovered after it went missing. However, the location of its crew remains a mystery to this day. There are two key books specifically about the MV Joyita mystery that we'll draw on for this episode. The first is The Joyita Mystery, published in 1962 by Robin Mohm. The second is Joyita, Solving the Mystery, published in 2002 by Professor David G. Wright of the University of Auckland. They each lay out the potential theories about what happened to the crew of the MV Joyita back in 1955. The theories break down into two groups. The first group suggests that the crew of the MV Joyita met their fates at the hands of an external threat. It could have been pirates, Soviet submarines, or weather. The second theory is that internal strife led the crew to their doom. 
the captain of the ship was either overthrown in a mutiny or else led his men to abandon the ship where they were subsequently lost at sea forever. We'll examine these theories as well as the brief but colorful history of the MV Joyita in this episode. The MV Joyita was associated with fame even before it vanished off the face of the earth for five weeks. The vessel was originally commissioned as a luxury yacht in 1931 for Roland West, a successful horror film director. West built the boat as a gift to his wife and muse, Jewel Carmen. He named the ship Joyita, which means Little Jewel in Spanish. Interestingly, Roland's original name for the vessel was pronounced Joyita, which is grammatically correct in Spanish. But when the vessel became globally famous in 1955, it came to be mispronounced as Joyita so often that the false pronunciation became common for the ship. It's why we'll be using Joyita in today's episode. At 69 feet long and 17 feet wide, the MV Joyita was a solid vessel that was capable of weathering the more intense conditions of the open ocean than smaller yachts of that era. For five years, Roland and Jules sailed around the world in the ship on long voyages that demonstrated the Joyita's seafaring capabilities. Then, the couple separated in 1935. Roland West found himself as the sad owner of a ship that was named in honor of his now ex-wife. I suppose there's a lesson to be learned about commissioning boats named after your spouse if your marriage is on the rocks. Well, West tried to recoup his losses and sold the boat to a man named Milton E. Bacon in 1936. There's nothing particularly noteworthy about Bacon's tenure as the ship's owner. He didn't have it for long. In 1941, the United States entered World War II and the U.S. Navy began requisitioning private boats for military use. The Navy took over the MV Joyita and outfitted her as a yard patrol boat. The ship patrolled the waters around the Big Island of Hawaii for two years until in 1943, it ran aground and suffered extensive damage. A private owner may have cut their losses and scrapped the ship, but the Navy could afford to pay for repairs and commissioned engineers to make the Joyita seaworthy again. Normally, stronger metals like brass or copper would be used to repair the hull and interior piping of a ship of the Joyita's size, but wartime supply shortages forced the engineers to use galvanized iron, which was a weaker metal that was more available at that time. The Navy retired the MV Joyita in 1945 following the end of the war. A clear paper trail doesn't exist, but we do know that Milton E. Bacon did not take repossession of the ship. She remained on the Navy's manifest of patrol boats and was dry docked in Honolulu for two years after the war. Then, in 1948, the Lewis Brothers fishing firm bought the Joyita and outfitted her to serve as a fishing vessel. The most noteworthy addition they made was a two-inch thick cork lining on the interior hull. The lining insulated the vessel and would keep freshly caught fish chilled during long voyages. By this point, the MV Joyita had been a pleasure vessel, a wartime patrol boat, and now a fishing ship. Every time she changed hands, she underwent alterations and repairs to account for her new purpose. No one at the time could know that these alterations would be partly responsible for the ship's disappearance and reappearance just a decade later. 
The Joita only acted as a fishing vessel for three years. Despite the modifications that the Lewis brothers' fishing firm had made, the Joita never really thrived as a fishing boat. The firm ultimately decided to sell the ship in 1950 and recoup some of their losses. The boat changed hands a few times over the next two years, until in 1952, Professor Catherine Luomala purchased it for $17,000. Luomala was a Finnish-born professor at the University of Hawaii who specialized in the study of Polynesian mythology. Luomala's work at that time largely consisted of research trips across the South Pacific region. Her purchase of the Joyita is a little baffling at face value. What would an anthropology professor want with a pleasure yacht turned patrol boat turned fishing ship? Now, it's possible that Luomala knew of the ship's war record. The Joyita had proven itself as an adept patrol boat in the waters around Hawaii during the war. If you don't count that one time it ran aground and needed extensive repairs, that is. It's also possible that Luomala bought the boat for more personal reasons related to her friend and suspected lover, Captain Thomas Miller. Thomas Miller, known to most by his nickname, Dusty, was a Welsh-born sailor who was always more comfortable on the open ocean than he was on solid ground. Miller was kind of the embodiment of the term fish story. He claimed to have been a lieutenant commander in the Royal Navy Volunteer Reserve during World War II, even though records indicate he was only ever an acting sub-lieutenant. After the war, he relocated to the South Pacific and spent a few years working on various merchant vessels. He had a reputation as a womanizer, despite the fact that he had a wife and two children whom he had abandoned back in Wales. Miller's lifelong ambition was to captain his own ship, and he wasn't the type to let anything hold him back from that, family included. By 1948, he was serving as a shipmaster on government-operated ships for the South Pacific Commissions based in Sydney. Miller reportedly met Catherine Luomala during one of his trading voyages to the Gilbert Islands, where Luomala was conducting research. There's a lot of suspicion and hearsay about Dusty and Luomala's exact relationship. Their love affair has never been confirmed, but we do know that after Miller met the professor, he abandoned his government contract and traveled with her back to Honolulu. Miller and Luomala worked together for six years. He reportedly referred to the professor as his fiance, and there was an understanding between them that they would be married if Miller ever got around to divorcing his wife back in Wales. The planned union never came to fruition. After Luomala bought the MV Joita in 1952, she chartered it to Dusty and appointed him as the ship's captain. Though she still owned the ship during Dusty's tenure as captain, there doesn't seem to be any notable correspondences between the two of them after 1954. We don't know what led to this lapse in communication. It's not a stretch to assume that Miller's true love was the sea and that no woman would ever be able to keep him tied down even when said woman was the one who bought the boat for him in the first place. Perhaps Miller simply knew he was a better sailor than he was a lover. When they were interviewed later, men who worked for Miller on the Joita reported that the man was an excellent sailor who kept a cool head even under the roughest of conditions. But in most of these accounts, respect for Dusty's prowess as a captain didn't translate to love of him as a person. 
The men who worked with Miller that didn't vanish in 1955 reported that he was aloof, cheap, and prone to bouts of violent hostility. He constantly underpaid his workers and rarely dined with them or spent any downtime with them at all. One man named Pulu Leval, who'd worked on the Joyita in early 1955, relayed a story of one time when Miller would spin loaded guns in his hand and take turns aiming them at his sailors. It was a bizarre, sadistic power play. David Wright puts forth in his book on the Joyita disaster that Dusty's reputation could have been the result of culture shock. Miller was a gruff, rough-around-the-edges Welshman, while his crew were largely Polynesian and came from a culture that emphasized community. But according to Leval, Miller was nothing less than evil. One thing of note about Miller's tenure on the Joyita is that his prowess as a ship captain didn't seem to translate to skill as a fisherman. His fishing voyages were routinely unsuccessful, and by 1955, he was deep in debt. He wasn't able to afford the harbor dues at a number of his usual docking sites, and so he became persona non grata in several of the territories that he relied on to resupply the ship. By mid-1955, Miller was living on the Joyita in poverty, close to bankruptcy. Miller even began to look into selling the Joyita. The ship wasn't his to sell in the first place, but it's unlikely that would have stopped him from trying. But then, he was granted a metaphorical lifeline by a 30-year-old district officer of the Tokelau Islands named Roger Peerless. Peerless oversaw a region of the Samoan South Pacific and was frustrated by the lack of regular, reliable transport between the islands in his district. When he met Miller and beheld the Joyita in 1955, he spotted a quick, cheap solution to that problem. Dusty took Peerless sailing on the Joyita as a kind of audition. Peerless was convinced, and he set about arranging for the Joyita to take a trip from the Samoan capital of Apia to the tiny remote atoll of Tokelau. The voyage was supposed to serve as an example of the Joyita's capabilities to Peerless's superiors. In reality, it was the last voyage of Captain Dusty Miller and the last time anyone saw him or his crew alive. We'll cover the fateful disappearance of the MV Joyita after this. Now, back to the story. In 1955, villages in Tokelau, a remote atoll in the South Pacific, were running low on supplies. Worse, a man on the atoll had developed gangrene from a cut on his arm and needed to be transported off the island for medical care. Government official Roger Peerless saw an opportunity for him to put forth the MV Joyita as a government-approved vessel tasked with transporting people and supplies among the small, scattered islands of his district. He scheduled the first of what was to be many trips in October of 1955. The ship was loaded with food and supplies for the villagers, as well as kerosene, lamps, lumber, and metal parts that could be used to build roofs for the islanders. Thomas Dusty Miller, captain of the Joyita, hired a crew of 15 for the trip. This was odd. As we've said, Miller was in desperate financial straits at that time. And this crew, which totaled at 16, was notably larger than any he had sailed with in the past. 
Each extra man drew a salary that cut into Miller's bottom line. More puzzling was the fact that the Joyita also carried nine passengers, all civilians, including two children. The Joyita was still registered as a merchant and fishing vessel at the time and was not licensed to carry passengers. Though Miller and Peerless would have known this, perhaps they hoped that the pressing need to get supplies to the island would draw focus away from that particular violation. With 25 on board and all the supplies, the Joyita was likely pretty cramped for the trip when it first set off on October 2nd. The ship didn't get far. Onlookers who had gathered at the dock to see the Joyita off reported that shortly after the ship set sail, tufts of black smoke wafted from the ship's exhaust. The Joyita was forced to return to the harbor. Miller blamed the smoke on rust buildup in the clutch of one of the engines. It's very unlikely that this was the case, so Miller was either misquoted, wrong, or was deliberately hiding a real issue with the ship's mechanics in order to prevent a delay. The crew worked on the issue overnight. With the extra time in the harbor, the Joyita was available to have its radio inspected. A superintendent later reported that he had reached out to Peerless and Miller about inspecting the radio. Miller declined, likely because he knew that if a problem was found with the radio, then the trip and his payment may be delayed. The MV Joyita finally set sail early in the morning on October 3rd, 1955. According to men who worked in the harbor that night, Miller ordered that the ship run only on its starboard engine to prevent further smoke. The sun was still down when the ship set out. It's likely that very few, if any, people watched the Joyita vanish over the horizon. If anyone did observe, then they were the last ones to see the crew of the Joyita alive. The trip from Apia to Tokelau should have taken no more than two full days, meaning the Joyita should have completed its journey by the morning of October 5th. It never arrived at its destination. By the afternoon, the harbormaster of Tokelau reported the ship as missing. The Royal New Zealand Air Force was alerted that same afternoon and sent out planes to search for the ship the next morning. The reason for the delay is unclear, but it's likely that officials thought there was a chance the ship might have just been running behind schedule. That suspicion may have been supported by the knowledge that the Joyita was only running on one engine when it left Apia. It is estimated that the aerial search for the missing MV Joyita covered at least 100,000 square miles, which would make it the largest search ever conducted in the Pacific Ocean. For perspective, the search for the missing Malaysia Airlines Flight 370 in 2014 covered only 23,000 square miles. After nine days and 163 recorded hours of flight time, the search was called off. By the end of October 1955, the MV Joyita was assumed to have been lost at sea and no one expected to see it again. But then, on November 10th, Captain Gerald Douglas of the Tuvalu and his crew spotted something in the waters about 100 miles north of the Fijian island of Vanua Levu. The Tuvalu approached the stagnant vessel, which looked to be in bad shape. She was heavily tilted to the port side, a clear sign that she had sprung a leak. The rudder was mangled and the steering cable had become detached. There was a large dent on one side of the ship, 
the crew of the Tuvalu eventually got close enough to read the name on its hull, Joyita. After 37 days, the Joyita had been found over 600 miles southwest of its original chartered course. The Tuvalu radioed in that they'd found the Joyita, waterlogged and without a living soul on board. There was no logbook or final message found on the ship. The flooding raised a peculiar question right off the bat. If the ship had been waterlogged for five weeks, why hadn't it sunk? The answer was cork. The cork lining that had been installed back in the 1940s when the Lewis Brothers fishing firm outfitted the Joyita as a fishing vessel made the ship considerably more buoyant, even as its interior filled with water. The Tuvalu attached cables to the damaged Joyita and slowly towed her into the harbor at the island of Vanua Levu in Fiji. Once there, she was drained and inspected as men went about the task of finding out what had really happened. Some clues were immediately evident. The life raft was missing, as was every life vest. Over four tons of the ship's cargo was gone. Most unsettling were the lengths of blood-stained bandages that were discovered in the crew quarters. The disappearance, search, abandonment, and subsequent discovery of the MV Joyita sparked a media frenzy. And as a result, misinformation quickly spread about what had happened or was suspected to have happened. There were a number of outlandish theories that spread about the Joyita's fate before an official investigation could be completed. The abundance of these theories makes each one very difficult to believe. The first widely publicized theory about the Joyita was published by the New Zealand Herald. This article put forth the idea that the ship was rammed by a Japanese pirate ship. This would account for the dent in the side of the ship. Additionally, word got out that inspectors had found Japanese manufactured knives on board. A journalist named Jack Thornton, who claimed to have sailed on the Joyita during an earlier trip, said that there was only ever one knife on board, so the influx of knives could indicate the presence of Japanese pirates. How Thornton knew for sure there was only one knife on board is an entirely different question that will likely never be answered. Looking at the facts, it's pretty easy to poke holes in the theory that the MV Joyita was attacked by Japanese pirates. While the Joyita was damaged and dented when it was recovered, it is estimated that the damage would have been much more severe if it had been rammed. If pirates had taken the whole crew captive, then why were the lifeboat and life jackets gone as well? The Japanese pirate theory, more likely than not, came from a general air of anti-Japanese sentiment that prevailed in the years following World War II. The Japanese pirate theory was one of the stronger conspiracies compared to the more outlandish things people claimed at the time. The Samoan government officers found themselves fielding hundreds of letters and phone calls from people claiming to know what happened. One woman from Australia even wrote that the ship had been transported to Mars and then returned without its crew. A theory that was slightly more grounded in reality began to circulate among sailors who were familiar with this region, claiming that Russian submarines were somehow involved. As with the theory regarding the Japanese pirates, this was certainly possible, but there was little hard evidence to back it up. This was during the early era of the Cold War, and the Western propaganda machine had gotten quite good at blaming any misfortune on phantom Soviet subs. 
Some sailors even put forth the theory that Captain Miller may have been a Soviet spy. While this is both unlikely and unverified, it's not the only theory that blamed the event on Captain Miller. One early report regarding the state of the Joyita when it was first towed in noted that the seacock, a valve on the hull that lets water flow into the vessel, was found opened. A reporter for the Christchurch Press jumped the gun and published that the only explanation for this open valve was that Captain Miller must have intentionally opened it as part of a plan to sink the ship. This theory doesn't really fly at all. It doesn't take into account that Miller had no assets besides the boat, which doubled as his only source of income. Additionally, the Joyita wasn't insured, which casts doubt on any theory that Miller would have intentionally sunk the boat. And of course, if Miller had really tried to sink the boat, where did he end up? Still, some suspected that Miller might have actually been planning to escape his debts by faking his own death and absconding to Hawaii. Again, none of these theories have any real proof to back them up. But it's notable that so many people think that Miller had some hand in what happened to the Joyita or was otherwise at fault. To the people of New Zealand, Dusty Miller was an alcoholic loser who had barely been captain of his own ship for a year before he took 24 people out on an ill-advised trip with a clearly faulty ship. Despite all that, the actual fate of Miller and the Joyita may have come from Mother Nature. October marks the beginning of the wet season in the South Pacific. There's a noticeable uptick in huge waves, intense tropical storms, and even tsunamis. Water spouts, which are basically tornadoes on water, will also whip up a certain degree of treachery. Sailing on the open ocean is a dangerous endeavor, even if your ship's engine works and its radio is functional. The MV Joyita could have fallen victim to any number of external threats of both man-made and natural origin. Even though countless theories emerged from all sorts of corners, they were all missing one important thing, evidence. The evidence on board the Joyita, however, seemed to point to a different story. It indicated that there were no pirate attacks or natural disasters. Instead, it seemed that the fate of the Joyita was brought on by the actions of its own crew. We'll discuss the findings of the official investigation into the disappearance of the Joyita's crew and the charge that there was a mutiny right after this. Now, back to the story. In the fall of 1955, the MV Joyita went missing in the South Pacific Ocean. When it resurfaced over a month later, the ship was heavily damaged and all 25 people who had been on board were nowhere to be found. Speculators blamed everything from Japanese pirates to acts of God to Martians for the bizarre disappearance. But officials were more interested in finding out the real truth. In December of 1955, the Samoan government convened an official commission to investigate the fate of the MV Joyita. The investigation looked at the initial mechanical diagnostic that had been performed when the ship was first towed in from the open ocean back in November. Additionally, the commission sent its own investigators to re-examine the ship. The report showed that the ship's clock had stopped at 11.50 a.m., 
Despite this, the general conclusion was that whatever happened to the crew must have happened at night because every working light on the ship had been turned on. This would indicate that there was a time lapse between when the ship started taking on water and when the crew finally abandoned the ship or were taken. The commission found that the ship's radio was faulty and could only reach a range of about two miles. This naturally explained why no one had heard from the ship when things first started to go bad. The radio had been turned to 2182, the emergency distress frequency. Someone had clearly tried to call for help. Recall that it was Captain Miller who prevented inspectors from appraising the radio on the Joyita before the ship set sail. If the superintendent had been able to see the radio, then the Joyita may have avoided its uncertain fate. The radio isn't the only faulty issue that can be laid at Dusty Miller's feet. Recall the billowing black smoke from one of the engines that forced the Joyita to delay its journey by a day. Miller had claimed it was only rust buildup that caused the smoke. But the investigators found that the port side engine of the ship was completely out of commission, evidenced clearly by a disconnected propeller shaft. It's unlikely that the crew would have attempted such an extensive repair during a voyage, which means the engine had been in the process of being repaired before Miller signed on to travel to Tokelau. He likely thought he could get by on one engine and finish the repairs once they arrived. The two most complete narratives about what happened over the course of those two days the Joyita was en route to Tokelau are speculative writings in the books we've previously mentioned, The Joyita Mystery by Robin Mohm and Joyita Solving the Mystery by Professor David Wright. While neither of these writings can claim to be based in absolute fact, they each draw from the knowledge available to propose a potential timeline. They're worth discussing because they're really the only comprehensive sources about the MV Joyita that have ever been published. That said, these accounts are a far cry from being 100% accurate. In his 1962 account, Mohm claims that his version of the events was backed by the chairman of the commission that looked into the Joyita's fate, which is a stretching of the truth. The chairman did confirm that Mohm's timeline was one possible solution to the mystery, but he also emphasized that his job as chairman was to operate based only on known facts. Mohm, however, seemed to have no problem taking creative license when it suited him, and that becomes clear very fast when you read his take. Mohm states that at some point between Apia and Tokelau, the Joyita sailed into a massive storm. Miller refused to turn the ship around because he knew that he would be forced to allow his ship to be inspected, and at that time, he didn't have the money for the repairs. The crew, naturally, didn't agree with that reasoning and tried to take over the ship. During a scuffle, Miller fell and hit his head. He didn't die, but he was out of commission. Meanwhile, a leak began to fill the engine room. Miller was unconscious and thus unable to assure the crew that the cork lining rendered the ship unsinkable and the whole crew abandoned ship on the life raft. They were overtaken by the storm and died at sea. From there, Moam crafts something of a survival story centered around a woman named Tanini, the only crew member still loyal to Miller. 
In Mom's account, Tanini is the last surviving crew member after the rest all drown or die of thirst and starvation. They were eventually discovered by Japanese fishermen, but by then, Tanini had gone mad with hunger. The fishermen killed her when she attacked, and they dumped her and Miller's bodies into the sea. Mom's narrative reads more like a soap opera than an investigative account. But for decades, it was the only real book that had been written about the Joyita mystery. Then, in 2002, Professor David Wright from the University of Auckland published his account. David had a personal connection to the MV Joyita. His mother's cousin was none other than Roger Peerless, the man who had originally commissioned the Joyita for its fateful journey. Wright set out to create a revised account of what could have happened to the Joyita that was more based in fact. He approached the mystery from the assumption that there was a leak on board that started the issue. The first thing the crew would have done was try and plug the leak. They would have brought a pump down to the flooded engine room and attempted to drain the water. But based on what was found amidst the empty Joyita back in 1955, they wouldn't have been able to power the pump. The pump required a 120-volt battery, and the only batteries on board were 24-volt. Captain Miller really seems to have not prepared his ship for the challenges of sea travel. The crew would have panicked once they realized they couldn't drain the flooded engine. The first course of action would have been to lighten the ship by throwing the heavy cargo overboard. Someone would have tried to send a distress signal, but the broken radio, with its range of only two miles, was essentially useless. But all of this still leaves us to that one big unanswered question. Why would the crew abandon ship? Miller knew that the cork lining of the hull would have kept it afloat, and thus the crew should have known that the safest thing to do was to stay on board. Wright suggests that it's possible there was a mutiny prior to or during the initial panic about the leak. It should be abundantly clear by now that Miller was not very popular, especially among his own crew. Someone on board likely could have made the connection between the leak, the faulty radio, and the faulty engine, and deduced that Miller's own unsafe practices had led them to their current situation. The bloody bandages found on board could have indicated that someone was seriously wounded. But since DNA evidence was decades from being discovered, we'll never know for sure whose blood it was. Wright acknowledges that it's possible Miller himself gave in to panic. He may not have been thinking straight and thus led his men to abandon ship in a moment of recklessness. There weren't enough life vests for all 25 people on board. The rafts wouldn't have fit everyone, so if the crew did abandon ship en masse, they likely did so with several of them swimming alongside the rafts. It's anyone's guess what happened next as the crew set out adrift on the open ocean. But really, there seems to be only one possible fate. They all drowned. The one survivor of the MV Joyita mystery was the ship itself. After the affair had ended, the MV Joyita was prepped to be repaired and reset on the water. When she was first put back on the ocean, investigators found that she began taking on the water again. They finally found the real source of the leak, a lead pipe that had corroded and broken away. The pipe was under the floor plates of the engine room and likely would have been inaccessible to the crew. 
The source of the leak ultimately turned out to be the galvanized iron piping that the Navy had installed over a decade before when they repaired the Joyita during the Second World War. The official report commented on the then well-known fact that galvanized piping was susceptible to corrosion when it came into contact with salt water, particularly if that salt water was warmed by, say, the steam and machinery of a ship's engine. So it wasn't really Miller's fault that the ship had sprung a leak, but it was his fault that the lack of a working engine essentially stranded them at sea with no radio to call for help. The official conclusion was that the broken pipe had been the cause of the ship's initial malfunction. But to this day, no governing body has put forth an official statement as to what happened to the passengers, and will likely never know that full story. Unofficially, government officials found Thomas Dusty Miller to be guilty of negligence and the likely primary cause of the disappearance and presumed deaths of everyone who had been on board the Joyita. As one official put it, Dusty, quote, sacrificed his ideas about good seamanship to get the money from the charter. But Roger Peerless was also on the hook. He was a government official, and he had to have at least expected that the Joyita wasn't up to date on the inspections. The case of the Joyita ultimately seems to be the folly of two men who let 24 people board a boat that had no business being in the water. The ship itself actually lived on for a time after the ordeal was over. Catherine Luomala was still technically the owner of the ship at the end of 1955. She sold it the next year to a man named David Simpson for less than half of what she'd paid for the ship back in 1952. Simpson had the ship overhauled, refitted, and set back out on the ocean. It ran aground a number of times over the next few years until 1959, when Simpson ultimately beached the ship on the island of Ovalau and abandoned her. And there she stayed for two more years until 1961, when she was purchased by none other than Robin Mohm, the man who literally wrote the book on the Joyita disaster in 1962. Mom stated that he'd always intended to fix up the ship and set her back to sea, but nothing came of those plans and he sold it in 1966. The boat was slowly stripped for parts. By the 1970s, there was nothing left of the original ship. Just like the passengers who had mysteriously vanished, the Joyita was lost to memory. This is one of those mysteries where every proposed theory is potentially true just because all the evidence in the case has long since disappeared. Well, maybe the one about the Martians is a little lower than the others on the believability scale. Our conclusion falls in line with Wright's fact-based analysis. As the ship filled with water and its mechanics failed, the crew panicked. They either killed or incapacitated Captain Miller and then set out on the life rafts with the remainder of their life jackets. And thus, they were claimed by the sea. Today, the MV Joyita stands as another interesting footnote in the annals of maritime history. Its captain and its crew are gone, and their fates will likely remain a mystery for the rest of time. The ship, like its mysterious crew, is also gone, and all that remains is a legacy of mystery and a cautionary tale.
Thanks again for tuning in to Gone. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. You can find more episodes of Gone, as well as all of ParCast's other shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Just because it's gone doesn't mean it can't be found. Gone was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, with sound design by Russell Nash. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Gone was written by Laura Matthews and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. <laughs>